0: There's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, lined with shelves, cluttered with proof, stocked like a biological laboratory with microscopes, stacks of slides, trays of glass vials, each topped with a black rubber stopper. This label says, live virus. Oh God, there's a storage closet here crowded with crutches and splints and braces, lined up by size, down to the tiniest, fitted for toddlers. And over here, a terrifying machine. Looks like something between a steel coffin and an MRI. It's an iron lung. This place, this laboratory, stores the facts that matter, and matters of fact. It lies in a time between now and then. The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. Step across the threshold to an elementary school classroom in the year 1955. It's time for health class. Kids seated in wooden desks lined up in rows on squeaky linoleum floors. The teacher in an A-line skirt and pumps draws the blinds and wheels out a projector. Today, they're watching a film.
1: The symptoms are quite familiar. Yes, it looks like a cold. Scientists think that most colds are caused by extremely small microorganisms called viruses.
0: Viruses. This film is called Sniffles and Sneezes. It was made by the McGraw Hill Book Company. The first time I listened to it a few months ago, before the coming of the coronavirus, I thought it was quaint. Sort of cute, sort of sweet, even a little silly. But now, honestly, now it's haunting.
1: You see, what you think is a simple cold could really be the first symptoms of some other disease, such as measles, infantile paralysis, diphtheria, whooping cough, scarlet fever, influenza, and others.
0: Kids had to sit through films like this a lot in the 1950s because of the incredible revolution in the biomedical sciences in the first half of the 20th century. Diseases had once been mysteries, but these mysteries began to yield to facts in the 17th century, after the invention of the first microscopes, when scientists discovered microorganisms. Then came the germ theory of disease, and by the 20th century, modern vaccination. By the 1930s, there were vaccines for a lot of deadly diseases diphtheria, whooping cough, tetanus— but people had to show up to get vaccinated, or to get their children vaccinated. And that required believing in something you couldn't see, except with a microscope. Or in a health class film. It wasn't just fourth graders who had to sit through films about viruses. grown-ups did too, because everyone needed to understand the nature of disease in order to understand the need for a vaccine. And in 1955, a very scary disease was still going around. Polio. In the spring of that year, Vicky Merrick's brother, Chris, came home sick. He was three years old. He
3: came down with something. Mm -hmm. And he had a fever and he had cramps in his legs. Mm -hmm. And um, my father came home and I remember him telling, or somebody telling me he was lying on the landing, you know, just sickly. Mm. And of course, everybody was freaking out. And, um, And Chris told me that he... Daddy told him he was sick for, like, a couple of weeks. I mm-hmm. heard it was much shorter mm-hmm. that it passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mother came down with it.
0: I met Vicky when we were working on the first episode of this podcast. She's a voice coach, and she'd come to help me out. We got to talking about all the other episodes I was trying to write, including this episode about polio. And Vicky said, oh, my mother had polio. There was a time in the United States when everyone had a polio story about their family or their neighborhood or someone they knew. Polio struck a whole generation. Vicki's father was a doctor. He and his wife had nine kids. First, little Chris got sick, and then Chris and Vicki's mother, Aileen, got sick. Aileen was 38.
3: She got it in the spring of 55, I think.
0: One day you'd be fine, then you'd come home with a fever, a feeling of lightness, dizziness, weakness, and within days, You might have lost the use of your legs and your arms, even your lungs, depending on how far up the spinal column the virus took hold.
1: You are looking at a killer at work. These are healthy living cells under attack by the virus of poliomyelitis. The virus itself is not visible. Its lethal effect is infection, reduced activity, abnormal rounding, and death.
0: Polio was the most feared disease in the United States. Cancer killed more people, but polio attacked children, especially very little children. The disease often left them crippled for life. The search for a cure was one of the most important public health crusades in history. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know, how we used to know things, and why it seems lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This season, we're trying to solve a whodunit. Who killed truth? In this episode, we're following the path of a pathogen. Not just viruses, but something they spawned. Fear of vaccination. In the 1950s, the federal government opened a new department. At its center was a door with gilt letters that read, Office of the Secretary. The woman inside liked to be called... Mrs. Secretary. Her name was Evita Culp Hobby, the U.S.'s first Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. She was tiny. She was known for her glamorous hats. On a list of the world's best dressed women, she was number 11. When she took out a cigarette, 10 men would jump to light it for her. She came from Texas. A reporter from Time Magazine visited her once
4: in that office. She looked small and feminine behind her broad mahogany desk, but she moved with the poise and confidence of a successful business executive as she checked yes and no on a long list of requests for appointments and telephone priorities. Now and then, she paused reflectively and puffed on a parliament, then turned back to work. Outside, down through the mazes, corridors, and channels of health education and welfare, the news was spreading that Avita Hobby was a lady in complete command.
0: The lady in command had a lot on her to-do list, including polio. The president really believed in her. She'd run the campaign organization Citizens for Eisenhower, and had helped the general win Texas. But Hobby had never been involved in medicine or teaching or social services. She was pretty much opposed to the federal government playing a role in any of those arenas. That was a plus, though, because Eisenhower felt the same way. He couldn't undo the New Deal because the public supported it. But he wanted to keep all the government programs he created as small as possible. He wanted to stop it from becoming a newer, bigger deal. But a public health crisis like polio? That is a big deal. Let's, though, start from the beginning, back to the beginning of hobby's life, which was also around the beginning of the polio epidemic in America, and the beginning of vaccination, because those three stories are all tangled up together. Avita Culp was born outside of Austin in 1905. She was the second of seven children. Her mother named her Avita because it rhymed with her sister's name, Juanita. As a kid, Avita read the congressional record for fun. She came from a political family. Her father was a Democrat, her mother a suffragist. They lived in the segregated South, where everything was segregated, including doctor's offices and hospitals. At the time, a lot of states had compulsory vaccination programs, especially for smallpox. Because of that, over the course of Avita's lifetime, smallpox all but disappeared. That disappearance, though, led to a paradox. The more successful the vaccine, the lower the incidence and virulence of the disease. With the disease on the wane, more people start to doubt that the vaccine's necessary. This is what always happens. It's as if, when people can't see children dying with smallpox anymore, they decide that smallpox doesn't actually exist. The American Anti-Vaccination League was founded in 1908, when Evita was three. Organizations like it were popping up all over the place then. Early anti-vaxxers thought that they spied a vast conspiracy, a well-laid plan to medically enslave the nation. Soon, the Anti-Vaccination League was handing out pamphlets like this one, called The Crime Against the School Child.
5: All compulsory vaccination law is based on a triple falsehood, that compulsory vaccination on a part or the whole of the population is necessary to prevent smallpox epidemics, that nothing else prevents smallpox epidemics but general vaccination, and that vaccination is perfectly safe and harmless and never causes injury or death. All of these propositions are absolutely and demonstrably false, and therefore any law based on them is absolutely invalid.
0: A century ago, the same Americans who railed against compulsory vaccination also railed against what they called compulsory insurance. In 1915, when Evita was 10, it looked as though the U.S. was finally about to pass legislation establishing a national health insurance program, like most of the rest of the world. But conservative critics argued that it would be un-American, unsafe, uneconomic, unscientific, unfair, and unscrupulous. Then, around the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, and a masterstroke that's still kicking around today, they decided to call it socialized medicine. And with that, the plan was defeated. In 1916, when Evita was 11... The first major polio epidemic hit the US It came mainly to New York. The most reliable statistics suggest that in the epidemic's first year alone, 27,000 Americans got infected and 6,000 died. It hit kids hardest. More than three-quarters of those who died were children under the age of five. For a long time, polio, which is also called infantile paralysis, was known heartbreakingly as the baby plague. In Texas newspapers, Avita's parents would have read all sorts of advice about how to protect her.
6: The disease is extremely infectious and contagious, particularly in the homes of the careless and the slovenly. Keep your house clean. Keep the children clean. Keep their bowels open. Keep them away from crowds and put them to bed early.
0: But this advice, it turns out, probably wasn't much good. The pattern with other diseases had gone like this. The cleaner conditions got, with the end of open-air sewers and privies, the lower the incidence of infectious disease. But polio didn't follow that pattern. The better the hygiene, it seemed, the worse the polio. At the time, no one understood why, but it turns out that babies and young children exposed to the polio virus while they're still breastfeeding or not long after weaning, they develop antibodies strong enough to ward off an infection for life. Babies and young children most vulnerable those who'd never been exposed to the virus because they lived in antiseptic, hygienic places. Avita grew up picking cotton in Texas. She had the kind of not-super-spick-and-span childhood that probably spared her. When Evita grew up, she decided to go into politics. She went to college for a couple of years, then left to sneak into law school classes at the University of Texas. In 1930, she ran for the state legislature as a Democrat, but lost to a candidate who was a member of the KKK. The next year, when she was 26, she married a man twice her age, former governor of Texas, William Pettis Hobby. She always called him governor. He was the publisher of the Houston Post. She worked there as a writer when she married him. Then she became an editor. Later, she took over altogether. The Hobbies had two children who were 16 and 11 during a particularly bad year for polio in Texas. Somehow, Vita's kids didn't get infected. Maybe she'd kept them inside.
1: Good morning, boys and girls. Looks like Blondie and Dagwood are going to go out in a fishing party. Toby, you got any fishing music over there? Yeah, yeah a little bit by the sea. Yeah, that's good. That's fine. Oh, listen to that.
0: Now, that's Hubert it. Humphrey, the mayor of Minneapolis, on WCCO Radio in 1946. You thinks stay-at-home campaigns are new. They're not. We've been through this before. During bad years for polio, American cities and towns ran campaigns urging kids to stay indoors every day, all summer long in order to avoid catching polio. Radio stepped in to help kids fight the boredom. Humphrey read the funnies out loud over the radio, with his two kids at his side.
1: There's Dagwood, uh, uh, kids, and there's Dagwood right along, there's, right alongside the, the lakeshore there, and he says, I don't know why it is I can't catch a fish.
0: But Dagwood was wasn't enough. Polio kept getting worse, worse every year. Adults, of course, sometimes got it, too. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had gotten it in 1921. Determined to find a cure, FDR helped found what became the March of Dimes. It's called that partly because kids would march around collecting dimes in tin cans for polio research. Evita Hobby and her husband had supported FDR when he ran for president in 1932. They were longtime Democrats, Southern conservative Democrats, so they opposed a lot of FDR's social programs. In 1942, Evita Hobby became head of the Women's Army Corps. She was among the first women ever to earn the rank of colonel. For her salary, she accepted a dollar a year. That's how she knew Dwight Eisenhower. He was the highest-ranking man in the military. She was the highest-ranking woman.
1: By 1952,
0: Hobby had abandoned the Democratic candidate. She'd grown tired of the New Deal. She liked Ike. On the campaign trail, Eisenhower denounced a proposal that many Democrats supported, the establishment of national health insurance.
7: Instead of the patient getting more and better medical care for less, he will get less and poorer medical care for more. In
0: 1952, the United States witnessed the worst polio epidemic in its history. 58,000 Americans got infected. Everywhere, there were stories about suffering. In interviews, on the radio.
1: Well, if you remember, will you keep in mind that all of these families that we're talking to today are just plain, common, ordinary American families. There isn't anything outstanding about them. You you don't have to be the president of the United States or, or the president of the republic in order to get polio. You can be just a plain, common, ordinary person like me and you.
0: Ordinary people, including really little kids, had ended up living in iron lungs. It's that machine you're hearing right now, a machine that could breathe for polio victims, who couldn't breathe on their own. It must have been like living in a coffin. You hear that, Little Richard Basil knew what that felt like. Hi there, fellow. what's your name? Richard Basil. Uh, Richard Basil, what's your I want to ask you a
1: big question. Rick. How did you like being in that iron lung? I didn't like it a bit. You didn't like it a bit. What did it feel like? Was there any feeling to it at all?
8: I felt air.
1: You felt air? And that era sort of did lots of things for this little fella, too. By golly, you certainly do look healthy. How old are you?
4: Seven years old.
1: Seven years old. And and who's a little seven-year-old guy that's going to go on to be president of the United States, maybe? Or a ball player. What do you want to be, a ball player? I want to be a baseball player. A little fella that's seven years old, and he's going to be a baseball player. And, uh, of course, he's going to be able to do that, too, if he wants to. If he has the ability, it's up to him. But he's going to be able to do it. Because of this big iron monster that we were talking about, this big iron lung, the thing that breathed into him the breath of life. How are you feeling now, Dick? Pretty good? Hi. Well, that's really swell. Thank you very much, Richard Basil and Mrs. Basil. Well, you've heard one.
0: I don't know, but that interview always sounds so heartless to me. That kid isn't gonna grow up to play baseball.
4: Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello.
2: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices, anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G the hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com mobilecom awards. unconventionalawards. That's T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat. Ha.
7: Huh. Hmm. Hmm. Ha. Huh. Hmm. Hmm. Huh. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. What? <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> oh
0: my gosh. What is that? <laughs> wow! Oh my god! Radio Lab. Whoa! Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. At the end of that terrible epidemic year, 1952, Eisenhower won the presidency, and he appointed the inimitable Vita Hobby to head what would become the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, the department that would be charged with handling the polio crisis. Hobby was a dynamo. She oversaw one of the biggest budgets of any department of the federal government. She was only the second woman ever to serve in the cabinet, and reporters found her irresistible.
4: She works six days a week with time off every Saturday afternoon for a hairdo at Elizabeth Arden's. Her day begins at 6.30 a.m., with a thorough perusal of the newspapers, and she arrives at the office a little after nine. As a rule, work continues through lunch, invariably cottage cheese or fruit salads, with Mrs. Secretary issuing orders as she eats. Most nights, Ovita Hobby is hard at work until midnight.
0: Someone else was hard at work that year. The man who would perfect a vaccine for polio, a young, brilliant, and ambitious virologist, Dr. Jonas Salk. The story of the polio vaccine became a legend, even as it was being reported.
1: Working at Pittsburgh University's virus research laboratory, the 40-year-old Dr. Salk labored three years, often 16 hours a day, six days a week, to painstakingly perfect a vaccine.
0: Jonas Salk developed the polio vaccine in 1952. The problem was how to prove that it worked. Incredibly, in 1954, he ran a field trial on millions of children, starting with his own. Some of the kids in the study would get the vaccine, others would get a fake shot, and still others no shot at all.
1: Even so, it was the largest such medical test ever attempted. 440,000 youngsters in 44 states were inoculated with the Salk vaccine, 210,000 received dummy shots and more than a million other children were observed in comparison. Not a single child who completed the Salk vaccinations died of paralytic polio.
0: People who lived through this time remember the vaccine announcement like it was yesterday. It was a public health triumph, a victory for science. The world, truly, the world celebrated.
1: Poliomyelitis or infantile paralysis is no longer the scourge it once was. Thanks to the killed virus vaccine developed by Dr. Jonas Salk and first used in 1955, thousands have been spared, death and crippling.
0: That's the storybook version of the Salk vaccine, the legend. And much of that story is true. But it leaves out a few things, things that turn out to have to do with race, and especially with the federal government's authority to make decisions about health, education, and welfare. The kids in the field trial, to test whether they'd contracted polio, they'd have their blood drawn. But to tell whether that blood contained the virus, it had to be tested on cells. For that, laboratories involved in the field trial used cells that had been grown from a sample taken from a woman named Henrietta Lacks. Jonah Salk's field trial wouldn't have succeeded without those cells. This is where the story about polio becomes a story about race. In 1951, Henrietta Lacks went to the doctor. She was 30, a black woman with five children. She had a terrible pain. She described it as a knot in her womb. She had cervical cancer, a very aggressive cancer. You might know about Henrietta Lacks if you've read a book by Rebecca Skloot called *The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks*. Skloot, with a lot of help from one of Lacks's daughters, tells the story of how a cell biologist in Baltimore, George Guy, scraped some cells from Lacks's tumor. Then he kept those cells in his lab at Johns Hopkins without the knowledge or consent of Henrietta Lacks. A few months later, a surgeon took still more cells from her tumor they were unlike any cells anyone had ever seen before. Usually cells don't last long, but Lax's cancer cells lived and kept growing and they grew fast, incredibly fast. Guy called the cell line the HeLa strain after the first two letters in each of her names. They became part of the fight against HIV-AIDS. They're being used to study COVID-19. They've revolutionized medical research. But the ways they've been used have also raised all kinds of medical ethics issues. It also turned out that the HeLa cells were very susceptible to the polio virus. Doctors had long believed that African Americans were immune to polio, because it seemed to hit affluent white families hardest, maybe because of their affluence. One theory was that wealthier families kept cleaner houses, which made their children less likely to be immune. But black children did get polio, and when they got sick, they were barred from the best treatment centers. So the Tuskegee Institute, a historically black college, founded its own polio research and treatment center. And in 1953, Tuskegee started a cell factory, producing HeLa cells to be used in Sox field trial. The Tuskegee Institute Cell Factory, the first cell factory ever, was staffed by a team of black women scientists, eventually 35 of them. They worked in specially outfitted air-conditioned laboratories. They used binocular microscopes. They pioneered the development of rubber screw tops for test tubes that they stacked in special stainless steel racks. At the peak of the project, they shipped 20,000 cultures a week in boxes marked Perishable Biological Material. The black women at Tuskegee growing cells from the cell line of Henrietta Lacks eventually shipped some 600,000 test tubes of HeLa cells. This part of the story wasn't entirely left out of the legend of Jonas Salk. I did find one mention of it in 1955 from a New York Times feature story.
4: About 25 Negro scientists and technicians are participating in the production of HeLa cells. About half of the laboratories are using HeLa cells prepared on Tuskegee's campus. The Times described
0: the HeLa cells as cells taken from a single human cancer which resulted in the death of a woman in Baltimore. They're protecting her anonymity— But the Times never mentioned that the cells came from a black woman. I have a theory about that particular silence. The Supreme Court had just ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that segregation is unconstitutional, which had led to a resurgence of white nationalism. That was the state of the nation at the time of Jonas Salk's field trials, trials that mixed the blood of white children with cells taken from a black woman. Probably that was just not a story the Times was willing to tell in 1955, they wouldn't have wanted white people to not take the vaccine because it had come, even indirectly, from a black woman. The results of the field trial finally came in on April 12, 1955.
7: An historic victory over a dread disease is dramatically unfolded at the University of Michigan. Here, scientists usher in a new medical age with the monumental reports that prove the Salk vaccine against crippling polio to be a sensational success.
0: It doesn't take any historical imagination these days to understand the relief the public must have felt hearing the news that day. We all know what it feels like to wait for that day, for that news. The anticipation of getting everyone immunized, the prospect of ending the long days of staying at home. A vaccine, a vaccine, thank God, a vaccine. <laughs>
7: It's a day of triumph for 40-year-old Dr. Jonas E. Salk, developer of the vaccine. Hundreds of reporters and scientists from all over the nation gather for the momentous announcement. Proudly on hand, too, are Mrs. Salk and the son, who received the first injections.
0: Reporters flooded a building at the University of Michigan to hear the announcement of the results of Salk's field trial, the field trial that had been made possible by Tuskegee and the HeLa cells. They stampeded to get a hold of copies of the press release.
1: And the entire world heralded the discovery, which assured an end to one of mankind's most dread diseases.
0: That night, Jonas Salk appeared on CBS's See It Now, interviewed by Edward R. Murrow.
1: Who owns the patent on this vaccine? Well, the people, I I would say. There is no patent. This is... Could you patent the sun? (laughs) Well, uh, Dr. Salt, what about the priorities? Uh, who should determine who gets what in this limited supply situation? Well, uh, I think it's unfair, really, to let everyone decide for himself who gets what. Uh, it would be as if uh, everyone on your show decided what he wanted to do, uh, if and when he wanted to do it. It seems to me there ought to be some central intelligence that would indicate uh, at least uh, Uh, suggest uh, what should be done, if not uh, specify.
0: The scientists had done their part to protect kids from polio. Now the government needed to step up with its central intelligence, a way to get the vaccine out to the public. The congressional record shows that Secretary Hobby did express
5: a lot of excitement. It's a great day. It's a wonderful day for the whole world. It's a history-making day.
0: In parts of the world with compulsory national insurance, the polio vaccine was rolled out right away. Ontario, Canada, committed to provide free vaccines for all citizens between six months and 20 years old. Things went differently in the United States. The day after Salk announced his vaccine, Avita Hobby appeared before Congress. She struck down any suggestion that the distribution of the vaccine should be regulated by the federal government, or that vaccination should be compulsory.
5: If we were to try to put this on a regulatory basis because of the length of time it would take to achieve the regulatory basis, it is entirely possible that many children would thereby have been denied the shots.
0: Okay, making regulations takes time, and we don't have the time. Summer was coming. But the field trial had been going on for nearly two years. Why wasn't there a plan already set up, ready to go? As the lady in command, Hobby could be famously terrifyingly effective. Why had she dropped this ball? Eisenhower was getting frustrated. Kids were clamoring to go outside. Everyone knew the rate of polio infections rose with the heat. The clock was ticking. The president asked Hobby to report on her plan to distribute the vaccine. It was just around this time, spring of 1955, that Vicki Merrick's mother got sick. Vicky's mother, who had nine kids, and whose husband was a doctor, Vicky was just a baby, not yet one, the littlest. Their father noted the progress of the disease in a tiny notebook that Vicky still got.
3: I was searching for one of my dad's little notebooks, yeah. And I because I know I've seen that uh, yeah. that marking of his, like saying at ten fifty two, lungs. You know, like when the polio was moving through her body. Before she went to the Iron Lung. I remember seeing this, you know, rundown of like Ely fever, mm-hmm. lungs, something. And, you know, it was kind of like running through the evening. I mean, I think it moved through her pretty quickly. Yeah. And um, they finally said, all right, we got to go to the Iron Lung.
0: While Vicky's mother lay in a breathing machine in Massachusetts, Eisenhower in Washington convened a cabinet meeting. I've got the minutes to that meeting here in the Last Archive. There is no transcript, just the minutes. But here's what went down. Eisenhower wanted Hobby to come up with a national plan for the federal government to distribute the vaccine free of charge. He wanted that plan yesterday. But Hobby had just sat on this request because she wanted the states to distribute the vaccine or corporations, pharmaceutical companies, or charities, anyone but the federal government, because she didn't want socialized medicine. Listen in. Eisenhower turns to a presidential medical advisor named Chester Kiefer.
7: How much would it cost to provide the vaccine to children who could not afford it? Uh, $4.20 for three cc's, enough for three shots. Uh, How much would it cost for a national program to provide the vaccine to every child whose family could not afford it? Uh, well... Mr.
5: President, that's... Five states have already enacted laws to provide these funds, and 13 more are doing so. My department is now considering alternative proposals for financing shots for poor children. Rather than announce a program of matching grants now, I want to see how many of the states will provide this themselves. The government's program should probably be limited to assisting those states who cannot do this.
7: The government must ensure that... If necessary, federal funds will be forthcoming to cover the cost of the vaccine for children who cannot afford it. No child must be denied the vaccine for financial reasons. If necessary, we should use the President's emergency fund, but some source must be found.
5: It is not clear. We have not decided who would be the proper distributing agent. The Public Health Service? The Children's Bureau?
0: There were only so many excuses Hobby could come up with. Meanwhile, not only did the president press her for a plan, but the governors of every state asked for a department to take charge. Then tragedy fell. Hobby had licensed six pharmaceutical companies to manufacture the vaccine. But one of those companies failed to inspect its samples with sufficient care. They prepared vaccines that actually caused polio. Vaccinated children became infected, some were crippled, and some died. At first, parents had rushed to get their kids vaccinated. Now, with this news, overnight, a lot of parents were terrified of the vaccine. That summer, 1955, Vicki Merrick's mother, Aileen, was still in the hospital, in the iron lung ward. She'd made a good friend there, a woman about her age, named Lily Manning. Lily's husband, like Aileen's husband, was a doctor. He actually had the vaccine, had it at home, in their fridge, ready to go. But at the last minute he decided not to give it to his wife because he was worried about that bad batch. The bad batch that caused polio. And then she got sick.
3: Her story was very similar to my mother's. Anyway, so there's this batch waiting and then So this she woman got a fever. contracted
0: it while she had the vaccine in her in the, refrigerator. Yeah, yeah. Was the secretary Hobby's fault? Jesus, I think so. Anyway, she had to answer for it, before the Senate.
6: Now I wonder why it was necessary to delay action in making the survey until two days after the public announcement was made by Dr. Salk and the Evaluating Committee, when there was every indication a long time in advance of that that this vaccine would at least be reasonably
0: effective. The Democrat from New York pressed Hobby on why she'd failed even to make an initial survey
5: of the problem, until it was nearly already too late.
6: I would like to have some explanation.
5: You would? Well, I can give you part of it. Now, I would assume that this is an incident unique in medical history. I think no one could have foreseen the public demand... I don't think the senator need be troubled too seriously about this. May I say I am very
6: sorely troubled.
0: Finally, Hobby put together a plan. She declared that the federal government would not take charge of vaccination or make it compulsory. Instead, it would allocate grants to the states to be used to distribute the vaccine to poor children. By then, Democrats had begun to call for Hobby's resignation. How could the United States Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare not have made a plan sooner?
8: This is about as glaring an example of how a secretary of a government department should not act as I have ever seen in the administration of our government.
0: The Senate called Hobby back for another grilling. But now some Republicans were ready to make this a bigger argument, a political argument about public health.
6: Now, I think this gets down to the thing that both you and I are afraid of. That where we have federal provisions, we have federal control. Is that not true?
5: Well, they go hand in hand, or they walk very closely together, I should say, Senator Goldwater.
0: The arch-conservative Barry Goldwater of Arizona saw things Hobby's way. Compulsory vaccination, compulsory health insurance, it all led in one direction.
6: If this situation ever came about in this country, and let us pray that it never does... Is there any other term for it than socialized medicine?
5: That is socialized medicine by the back door and not by the front door.
6: Mrs. Secretary, you have just said what constitutes my greatest fear about this approach.
0: By July of 1955, more than 4 million American children had received a polio vaccination. And it worked. Polio would never again plague the country. The way it had plagued it for so many years. Later that month, Avita Hobby resigned from Eisenhower's cabinet. She said she was leaving to care for her elderly husband. That summer, Vicki Merrick's mother, Eileen, was still in the iron lung ward. All the patients had mirrors at the ends of their beds so that even while lying down, they could look a little bit around the room. Lily Manning, the friend she'd met there, was later interviewed by a newspaper about their time on that ward. When I went to see Vicky, she read that interview to me.
3: One after another, the days came when a nurse would walk by each lung, turning each mirror down. They lowered the mirrors whenever a body had to be passed between us, Manning says. They'd roll it by to get to work, cleaning the lung, and a little while later, another patient was put in. Lily Manning and Aileen Merrick were realists. They would not dance again, but they would go home. And Merrick was determined not to spend her life in an iron lung.
0: In December of that year, Vicky and her eight brothers and sisters went to see their mother in the hospital. Vicki has a photograph. The boys with their crew cuts, the girls in beautiful dresses, everybody in their Sunday clothes, and then a priest, a cardinal, standing by.
3: So this is, oh my um, gosh, <laughs> um, I think it was like a Christmas Eve something where Cardinal Cushing like set a mass for the family yeah. and came in and they led us into the hospital um, to sit with my mom. So, yeah, yeah there is everybody and wow. my dad.
0: Wow. And this is you. Yeah. Sitting Oblivious. Sitting in your mom's lap. <laughs> Vicki's mom would joke about it, that visit from the Cardinal.
3: She had a pretty, you know, classic Irish, you know, gallows sense of humor. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
3: She goes, no, no, seriously, where can you read the newspaper, listen to the radio, eat your lunch, move your bowels, and visit with his eminence all at the same
0: time? <laughs> Finally, on Mother's Day, 1956, Vicki's mom got to come home.
3: When she came home and she was in a wheelchair, she was ripping through the house and just like breathless, mm-hmm. but going, this place is a
0: pigsty
3: and, you know, like yelling at everybody about <laughs> yeah. whatever. And And so I think that there was this fake out, like maybe my brothers and everybody thought, oh, she's back.
0: Just a few days later, she got pneumonia.
3: But she wouldn't go back to an iron lung. She was determined. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I think maybe I was mad at her because I thought that she chose not to go back mm-hmm. in time into an iron lung. Mm-hmm. But I think that mm-hmm. she was just like, I can't go back into an iron lung. Like, mm-hmm. I can't live my life like that. Yeah. Um. I don't know.
0: Eileen Merrick died that May 1956. The wake was held at their house. Vicki remembers, as a little girl, being confused.
3: They were making all these sandwiches, and I could tell everybody was, like, bustling around, like, as if we were having a party. Mm-hmm. And there she is mm-hmm. in the room, in the, mm-hmm. in her open coffin. And I mm-hmm. kept saying, why is Mummy taking a nap if we're having a party? Why is she resting now, mm-hmm. you know?
7: Mm-hmm.
6: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
2: Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization. Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before. A platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies. The Cellular Vehicle to Everything Network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the Community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Huh.
7: What?
0: Oh my goodness! Wow!
7: Oh
0: my, gosh. Wow.
7: Oh my god!
0: <laughs> Radio Lab. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
1: It could strike anybody, anywhere. It was so devastating that many of its victims were paralyzed in spirit as well as body.
0: When Evita Hobby resigned, Eisenhower said he greatly regretted her departure. He agreed with the Secretary of the Treasury, who told her, You're the best man in the Cabinet. Hobby left Washington, but the political schisms she'd helped make only grew wider.
1: One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it.
0: That's the actor Ronald Reagan, just a few years later, in 1961, turning himself into a political candidate by setting out his agenda. He would wage a war against creeping socialism by fighting against socialized medicine, by which he meant, at the time, Medicare. But he also set out to fight public trust in the idea that big government can solve big problems. Vita Hobby went back to Texas and ran the Houston Post for years. She died in 1995 at the age of 90. Three years later, a claim started circulating that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine causes autism. That set in motion a new anti-vaccination movement. In the year 2000, the Centers for Disease Control declared that measles had been eliminated in the United States, sparing thousands of children an early death. It turned out that announcement was premature. By 2019, the government was battling multiple outbreaks of measles. Nearly 90% of those infected had never been vaccinated.
5: A quarter of the world's population is now living under some form of lockdown due to coronavirus. More than 3 billion people in almost 70 countries and territories have been asked to stay at home. The worldwide pandemic of COVID-19,
0: the contagion, the deaths, the isolation, the economic shock, the race for a vaccine, iron lungs replaced by ventilators. All that was not lurking in my mind as I researched this episode, because it hadn't happened yet. Instead, I'd been thinking about long-ago viruses, and about other, older patterns that kept the United States from adopting universal health insurance. I'd been investigating a crime, the killing of truth. It had felt like a metaphor when I began, before people started dying. Researching this episode, I wanted to find out the mechanism by which people had come to be suspicious of vaccines, and it seemed to me that it had something to do with the opposition to universal health care. But there was something else going on, too a forgetting. I called an expert, you see him in the news all the time these days, talking about the coronavirus, Dr. William Schnafner, a professor at Vanderbilt and the medical director of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases.
9: It must be now about 10 years ago I was just speaking, asked to speak to a group of parents, largely moms, who were vaccine skeptical. They wanted information. So uh, they gathered about, there were somewhere between 20 or 30 of them, and I decided that I wasn't trying to persuade anybody of anything, but I would tell them first about the diseases. And I was talking about one or another and began then to talk about poliomyelitis, polio. And one of the ladies there got a very quizzical look on her face. And I said, let's stop for a moment, Mrs. Jones. And uh, you seem confused about something. Ask a question and then we can go on. And she said... Why are you suddenly talking about shirts? (laughs) So she mixed up polio with, of course, the manufacturer,
0: Polo. Vaccination provides what's called herd immunity. Everyone needs to do it. The whole herd. It's about trusting science, but it's also about having a sense of commonweal, the common good. That's what we don't have. I kept hearing in my head something Vicki Merrick told me about a letter she'd written to her father, the physician, while she was trying to come to terms with the loss of her mother.
3: He wrote me back on a prescription piece of paper, which he would do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he just wrote on the pad, on the prescription pad, was like, P.S., regarding your motherless childhood, it's crippling but not paralyzing. Love, Dad.
0: I guess I sometimes feel that way about American history. The burdens of this past. The beauty. The horror. The gift. The loss. The people who lived through it, remember. The rest of us only think we're immune. Or at least, we used to think that. The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Netafafri. Our editor is Julia Barton. And our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jason Gambrell and Martine Gonzalez are our engineers. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossy and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger-Jones, Jesse Henson, John Kuntz, Becca A. Lewis, and Maurice Emmanuel Parent. The Last Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Ryan McKittrick in the American Repertory Theater, Alex Allenson in the Bridge Sound and Stage, Philip Brush, the March of Dimes, and the WNYC archives. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fane, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gow, Olivia Oldham, Henrietta Riley, Oliver Riskin-Kutz, and Emily Spector. I'm Jill Lapore.
2: Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash
8: awards. See you there. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue: The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker, so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat earth theory, and why some still believe the earth is flat, despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way, or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.